A Leyden jar is a device that was used during the 18th century to store electrical charge. The jar was originally developed and discovered in the sense that its construction was formalized and in that it was written about in scientific literature, accepted by the scientific gatekeepers of the day, back in October of 1745. A Dutch scientist named Ewald George von Kleist was attempting to replicate an experiment that had been performed by another scientist named George Matthias Bose, who had become known for his development of an insulated conductor which allowed him to temporarily store static charges by insulating them from other surfaces to which those charges might otherwise escape. Bose developed an experiment through which he would set spirits, set alcohol, a light, using static, created using an early electrostatic generator, which at the time typically involved some kind of rubber, glass, plastic, or cloth being rubbed rapidly against another piece of such material, both of them non-conductive, and therefore capable of creating static electricity as a consequence of this type of friction. This is similar to what happens when you rub a balloon against your sweater. Same principles. Von Kleist thought that this was really neat, and wanted to set alcohol on fire using nothing but friction, too. Elsewhere, another Dutch scientist, this one named Peter von Muschenbroek, was also inspired by Bose's experiment, and was likewise trying to replicate Bose's success, which was predicated, by the way, on the theory that electricity was a type of fluid, and that if he could make some tweaks to Bose's model, he could perhaps capture some of this electric fluid rather than using it to set alcohol on fire. Muschenbroek and von Kleist were working at around the same time, and again, both working from the same previous work. But von Kleist was the first to figure out that by filling a small medicine bottle with alcohol, and then driving a nail through a cork in the top of the bottle, the nail submerged in the alcohol but not touching the bottle's sides, he could store a charge in that bottle. Though, as it turned out, this experiment could not be easily replicated by other experimenters, so his findings were very much in doubt for a while. He later found out that this bottle experiment only worked if the experimenter was holding the bottle. It didn't occur to them at the time that the holding of the bottle might be fundamental to it working, but, well, it was. The hand provided a grounding mechanism, a conductor, working opposite to the nail in the bottle. And I'll explain more about why this is important in a moment. So once that hand thing was settled, von Kleist seemed to have this whole thing figured out, which meant he technically developed this type of electrical storage mechanism first. He even demonstrated that it worked, that it stored electrical energy by accidentally touching the nail during one of his run-throughs, and then flying across the room when the electricity discharged into his body. This thing, this bottle mechanism, though, simple, could store a great deal of energy. But von Kleist's letters to other scientists and to the Royal Academy remained unread, and his experiments remained unreplicated for long enough that Muschenbroek was able to swoop in with his own version of the bottle, one that could be more easily and consistently replicated. Muschenbroek's bottle was very similar to von Kleist's, except that it used a chain instead of a nail, and that chain reached all the way to the bottom of the jar, where metal foil lined the glass. It utilized that metal as a conductor on the inside, and in later versions, on the outside of the lower portion of the bottle as well. 
Those pieces of foil served the same purpose as von Kleist's hand and the nail had served in his own experiments, which again allowed it to be more easily replicated and eventually helped explain how this little device worked. This jar became known as the Leyden jar because of Muschenbroek's work and the fact that he developed it in the Dutch town of Leyden. Von Kleist's work was eventually recognized as being the earlier contribution, but only after this name had well and truly stuck in the minds of scientists. Later versions of the Leyden jar attempted to increase the total amount of charge that could be held, while others attempted to figure out, essentially, how it all worked and why. It's important to recognize that at this time, in the 18th century, scientists were playing with electricity without really knowing what it was and how it worked. Again, the scientists building these devices were operating under the assumption that it was some kind of fluid. So having this jar, which they knew had certain properties in terms of being able to hold a charge large enough to throw a full-grown man across a room, that allowed them to finally experiment in a predictable way with large amounts of electricity. And a lot of the refinements to this jar device involved rearranging the pieces, changing up the materials used, and taking it apart little by little to see which components were actually necessary all of which was part of the process of figuring out what electricity was. A not-at-all-straightforward process with plenty of misunderstandings, disproven theories, and blind intellectual alleys along the way. It was thought for some time, for instance, that the electricity was stored in the liquid, which was at times water, at times alcohol, and at times a combination of the two. After more experimentation, however, many scientists, including Benjamin Franklin, were certain that the charge was actually held in the glass of the jar. But by 1756, a couple of scientists who worked together in a loose sense over a period of years in Europe developed a so-called air condenser variation of the jar, utilizing air instead of fluid as the main dielectric component of the device. Dielectric meaning a material that can be polarized by a charge, which allows it to store electrical energy by essentially serving as a barrier between a positive and negative charge. The how and the why of all of this is a little bit complex, but the important thing to understand for the purposes of this story is that there are different types of dielectric material, and they allow electricity to be stored in this way by separating the negative and positive charges. When those charges arc toward each other, when they are reunited, that's when you get thrown across the room, or otherwise discharge the stored energy that had been held in check by their positive-negative separation. This separation was accidentally accomplished by von Kleist early on, by utilizing the nail and his own hand as the two parts of a circuit, which he separated with glass. Muschenbroek used a chain to charge two pieces of metal foil, and those two foil components were, again, separated by the glass of the jar. The scientists, though, were assuming the dividing material, the dielectric, was where the energy was, and they produced elaborate devices to demonstrate this. Benjamin Franklin created what he called a dissectable laden jar, which seemed to show that the metal components were not charged, because you could separate them, take them apart, and touch them without being shocked, while the glass component could give you a small electric shock, a side effect of friction on the glass, not of the stored charge, as it turns out. After a relatively short period of misinterpretation about how these pieces fit together, these new air-based laden jars showed that this was probably not the case. 
and an even more advanced version of the jar, which at this point was no longer a jar, involved using the same overall concept, but in the shape of 11 panes of glass with very thin lead plates glued on either side of the stack. This arrangement of glass and lead was developed by Benjamin Franklin, and in a letter he wrote to another scientist about the device, he somewhat jokingly referred to it as an electrical battery, a bit of wordplay that referred to the then most common usage for the term battery, which meant an arrangement of guns lined up together in a row to be fired and managed as a group. It's thought that this wordplay, on Franklin's part, may be the origin of the use of the term battery to refer to this type of electrical storage device, as after that letter was written in subsequent years, that term was broadly applied to other devices of this sort, some of which utilized small arrays of laden jars connected to each other to increase the amount of electricity that they could store, and others that utilized electrochemical cells to achieve the same end, which is closer to the modern version of what we might think of when we think of batteries. Whatever specific version we might be talking about, though, the Leyden jar was the original example of what is today called a capacitor, a device that contains at least two electrical conductors separated by a dielectric medium, which is used to store electrical charge. And that's what I'd like to talk about today, capacitors, and how this surprisingly humble but stunningly ubiquitous invention has enabled much of what we take for granted in the modern world but is also, for a variety of reasons, becoming a vulnerability in the global manufacturing systems that we also take for granted today. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from Quartz, and it's entitled... The global shortage of capacitors impacts all consumer electronics. There's an electrical component called a ceramic capacitor. The Leyden jar mentioned in the intro was an early version of a capacitor, and a ceramic capacitor is like that. It does the same thing. But the dielectric, the thing that separates the positive and negative charges, like the glass, in those first laden jars, in this type of capacitor, the dielectric material is a type of ceramic. Back in the Apollo program era of NASA, an American company, which was one of the corporations serving the electronics needs of that agency, developed a method for stacking multiple capacitor disks onto little blocks, which allowed them to create higher capacity capacitors using less space than the previous methods required. These new stacked disk blocks were called multi-layer ceramic capacitors, or MLCCs. And although a lot has changed in how these MLCCs are produced, which specific ceramics are used, and how much space each block takes up in the years since, the general concept is still intact. We use essentially the same thing in our electronics today. And we use them in just about everything that we make. These little multi-layer ceramic capacitors are ubiquitous in the modern world. The shortage mentioned in this article's title is referring to MLCCs in particular. The additional context here is that these little capacitor blocks are tiny today and cost very, very little, less than half a cent apiece. But for a variety of intersecting reasons, the electronics industry is having trouble getting their hands on enough of them to produce all of the devices that they want to produce. 
And that's a problem because a whole lot of what is produced worldwide today has some kind of electrical component. There's a computer on a chip company called Raspberry Pi that is famous for making complete computers that fit on a single tiny little piece of silicone. One of their most famous products is actually a computer that can be used for relatively low power purposes that is in its entirety smaller than a stick of chewing gum. That little gum-sized computer chip has over 300 MLCCs on it. An iPhone X has about 1,000 MLCCs, and a Tesla Model 3 electric car has over 9,000 multi-layer ceramic capacitors throughout its various systems. There's been a steady increase in the number of capacitors included in modern devices. The iPhone 6, for instance, which was released in 2015, only had about 500 of them, while the 10, which came out two years later, has 1,000. But the sheer ubiquity of electronics these days has also played a role in this shortage, alongside the steady increase in the number of MLCCs being used in each product. It's no longer just phones and computers that have chips in them, and it's no longer just processing components that have something electrical in them. All of our little cameras and sensors, the pieces that make up the Internet of Things, have capacitors. So do our toaster ovens and electric kettles, our cars, not just the electric ones, but all cars with anything electric in them, which is all of them, and our homes and clocks and space heaters and lamps, they've all got at least a few capacitors in them, somewhere, storing and releasing electricity for various purposes. This surge in capacitor use, combined with the low profit margins associated with manufacturing these things, led TTI Incorporated, an electrical components company that is one of the world's foremost distributors of MLCCs, to write a letter to their customers in July of 2018 saying that there is a worldwide shortage of the component and that this shortage, which has been building since 2016, will continue until at least 2020. This letter was intended to give these companies that make things which require MLCCs proper lead time for the development of their products. Because, for instance, if you're Apple and you're developing another iPhone and that iPhone continues along the trend line of iPhones when it comes to capacitors, increasing the number of them used in their devices by 10% or so in each new generation, that means that they'll need about 1,100 MLCCs per phone lined up and ready to be integrated into their manufacturing process to be installed in these phones as they are built. If Apple cannot get those capacitors on that scale, they cannot make their phones. So Apple needs to be able to plan years in advance to make sure the worldwide market has enough capacitors available for them to produce their most profitable product. This shift in timeline won't impact all industries equally due to the difference in number of MLCCs required and the difference in timelines and manufacturing schedules. But this issue will affect, to some degree, essentially all companies that make any electrical product anywhere in the world. From Apple and Tesla to the smaller, less well-known company that makes those cheap lamps that you can find at Target, or the USB charger that you bought at a gas station. And some companies have already felt the pinch of this shortage. This piece opens with a mention of GoPro, an action camera company that wasn't able to produce as many of their products as they wanted to produce in 2018. The company expected to sell 5 million cameras, but was only able to produce just to manufacture 4.2 million of them because they were not able to get enough MLCCs to reach that goal. 
There are already small production increases occurring in component companies all around the world as they attempt to fill the gap between supply and demand for capacitors. But these increases will not noticeably change the situation for a few years due to the time it takes to build these manufacturing systems to build and test the machines that they use to make capacitors. And the increase that's already taking place is unlikely to keep up with demand, in part because these companies are moving very slowly to fill these gaps, for reasons that I'll get into more deeply in a moment, and in part because the companies that make the machines that make the capacitors are also experiencing delays. As many of those companies have focused most of their attention on developing machines that will produce the next generation of capacitors and similar components for several years now. This makes good business sense, as the next step components will, in a decade or so, almost certainly start to find their way into the products that currently utilize MLCCs, and they want to be ready for that evolution. For the time being, though, MLCCs are a vital component for a vast number of products. So what makes good business sense for these machine companies ends up making less good business sense for companies further down the supply chain. Now, there's more to this story, as tends to be the case, when you introduce concerns over tariffs, especially in the U.S., and the requisite moving of manufacturing and shipping hubs in response to the uncertain future for Asian-based component firms that are having to reassess things as a consequence of today's political reality. The broader context here, though, expands outward from capacitors into all sorts of components, from transistors to resistors to discretes like oscillators and amplifiers and receivers, many of which are also experiencing immense and uncomfortable delays in manufacturing, which is, in turn, leading to shortages on the market, which is, in turn, beginning to influence which products get made and which do not which companies can afford to pay for more fundamental, typically cheap and often outdated technology that they nonetheless require if they want to keep functioning, and where future research and development dollars will go. Now there is a chance that today's shortages of components and the resultant ripple effects from those shortages are just a momentary thing. Manufacturers are understandably hesitant to overcommit, like they did back in the dot-com bubble days, which resulted in many companies being left with too many electrical components that then sat in warehouses, losing them gobs of money every day, and causing them to be more hesitant today to stockpile even the most fundamental-seeming products in their catalogs. We're also at a moment where a slew of component makers have obsoleted some of their older product lines of simple components nearly simultaneously, leading to a situation in which they are producing less of the golden oldies, the reliable decades-old tech, which is what MLCCs are. These designs are 20 to 30 years old on average, but at this point they haven't yet spun up production of the newer stuff, or, in some cases, they haven't convinced enough product manufacturers, which utilize these components in their wares, to use these newer, less proven components instead of those older ones. There have also been reports coming out that many of these manufacturers just are not that keen to keep churning out what's become largely undifferentiated commoditized products that don't give them any advantages over any of their competitors, and which they therefore cannot charge any premium for on the open market. MLCCs are so long in the tooth that all of these companies can produce them on scale and at a high enough quality that any single company doesn't have any edge, any differentiation between their product and that of their competitors, except in price, which leads to a downward spiral when it comes to profit margins, 
And that's not ideal if you are one of these companies. The products that they have in development, though, will allow them to sell based on quality and utility, which is a situation that's more favorable for their bank accounts, as it can allow them to stand out from the pack, producing components that their competitors cannot produce, or at the very least cannot produce as well. Whenever I learn about this type of industry imbalance, I can't help but marvel at how reliant we are on such tiny, fragile things. Such precarious systems within systems, which are at times themselves wholly or partially reliant on such insignificant-seeming bits of technology. Our utterly complex and sophisticated modern economy and manufacturing capabilities could be brought to their knees because we failed to produce enough 44-cent capacitors, a device that we've been producing for decades worldwide on a vast scale and yet somehow still have not managed to replace or reliably swap out for something new. It's unlikely that Apple is going to lose market share over this industry's truncated production numbers, or that the manufacturers of your car or computer or desk lamp will suffer overmuch as a consequence of the 5 or 10 cent increase in costs that are beginning to emerge due to the increased demand and reduced supply that we are seeing now and will be seeing these next few years on the capacitor market. Those costs can add up, certainly, especially when you're using thousands of these things in your products and producing tens of thousands or more of each of those products each year. But the real issue, to me, is the fragility of the system at its base and the fact that capacitors represent just one potential point of failure among many within this system. There are a few key points that I personally take away from this story about capacitors and our current shortage of them. The first is that remarkably sophisticated, complex, powerful things can very quickly become commonplace to the point of near invisibility due to their widespread manufacture and ubiquity. In the 18th century, this was technology so edgy that people were accidentally hurling themselves across the room with energy that they didn't understand using nails and corks and alcohol arranged just so inside a medicine bottle to play at what amounted to science-driven parlor tricks. These were some of the wealthiest and most knowledgeable people of the era, which were more or less the only people who could afford to do this kind of research at the time, and they were perplexed and curious and boggled by the potential of this thing, but they were only scratching the surface of what it meant, of how it worked, of how to formalize it. Fast forward to now, and we've got these things shrunk down to smaller than a grain of rice, and we're producing them at such a scale that they are available for less than half a cent per unit. And that's after our current levels of demand have pushed prices up substantially. My second thought here, though, is that despite this being a relatively simple device by modern standards, and something that we can produce by the billions every year, we can still be caught off guard by issues related to these older technologies being mixed with our newer ones. We see this a lot with code as well, as we tend to build increasingly complex software atop older software, only to have bugs or errors or limitations that were introduced in older code crop up somewhere down the line, potentially even decades later. We're pretty good at increasing our technological sophistication substantially and within very short periods of time, but we tend to move so quickly because of our propensity for constructing what is next atop what has come before. And at times, that construction method can cause us problems we thought we'd left behind, those problems then amplified by our desire to progress 
We didn't take the time to handle them before, moving on to the next new and flashy thing. And as a consequence, they haunt us for generations. There's a relatively common problem that can occur within power grids that involves something going wrong with a capacitor in one of their capacitor banks, which is a relatively small problem, easily fixed if identified and remedied. But it's also a problem that can, over time, spiral out of control, leading to what's known as a cascading failure, a situation in which one small failure, which requires another component of that larger system to compensate for that small failure. And that compensation requires further compensation by other components and onward and onward as that failure spreads and spreads, rippling outward, eventually involving the whole system. First in small, annoying ways, but then over time, a whole lot, eventually leading to a complete system shutdown. One that was caused by something quite small that eventually managed to topple the whole house of cards. That in mind, my third thought on this matter is that it's a bit poetic that the production of a component that is so often the root of a cascading failure in the systems that it is a part of can have its manufacturing process succumb to the same. One slowdown in production leads to compensation from other aspects of that production network, and that slows down other portions of that system, from the makers of the machines that produce the MLCCs to the companies closer to the consumer, which produce products that require capacitors to operate, And at a certain point, potentially, we see the whole of the electronics industry negatively impacted in ways great and small by the tweaking of capacitor production numbers halfway around the world. The way our global economy works these days, though, it's not just capacitors that are prone to this kind of systemic short-circuiting. Every single component of every single possible thing we can make as a species is a potential future bottleneck that can slow things down just so which in turn can cause a negative productivity-draining reverberation throughout the global economy. And the more interconnected we become, the more likely this potentiality becomes. It may be possible to install fail-safes and other just-in-case mechanisms throughout these systems to alleviate these sorts of issues in the future. But the shape those mechanisms would take are uncertain at best. Current free market solutions like raising prices provide some incentive for manufacturers to keep up with demand, but these solutions only solve some aspects of the problem and can even incentivize other behaviors entirely, as we have seen in the case of these manufacturers focusing on the next generation of capacitors instead of the current MLCC technology due to the disincentives of commodity pricing and competition. We may be able to figure out new regulatory methods that will allow entities, from trade organizations to governments, to provide outside incentives for filling these gaps. Though who will decide when these incentives would be triggered, and what shape the rewards would take, and where the funding for those rewards would come from, is anyone's guess. Whatever we do to address these weaknesses, though, there is some benefit in being aware of them, in general, and more broadly just being aware of these vulnerabilities, that they exist, to begin with. It can be humbling to realize how much of our modern world is propped up by just a small number of well-maintained, relatively antique innovations. Recognizing and respecting this fact can help us invest and reward appropriately. It may also help us to recognize the value in malleable but stable economic structures, especially during a historical moment when moving fast and breaking things is often more celebrated than taking our time and reinforcing our existing foundations.
The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Infinite Detail, and it's by the author Tim Maughan, M-A-U-G-H-A-N. This book's premise is what initially hooked me. The idea is that due to a series of things that happened that I will not get into because I don't want to give away too much, the internet is taken down permanently. And this book is set in the world immediately before that happens and in the world shortly after that happens. So the premise by itself is quite interesting. But what I particularly like about this book is that it does a great job of showing both sides of that argument, of what might happen in that situation, the pros and the cons. Namely, it is very, very easy to look at all the horrible things going on in the world and to say, oh my god, everything would be better if we just didn't have this horrible thing, this internet, and all of its many downsides. But it's very easy to forget just how many upsides come with this invention, with this network that we are, most of us, 50% of the planet at least, a part of, to varying degrees. And some of those benefits are things like being able to connect with loved ones halfway around the world instantaneously, to see each other's faces across that distance. But there's also more fundamental things, like the fact that our global shipping networks and our economies, our point-of-sale systems are all connected to the internet. The ability to purchase fundamental things like medicine and fuel and electricity to provide resources to law enforcement and militaries. These are the types of things that we don't typically think about when we're having discussions about the positives and negatives of the internet. But in many, many ways, these systems and most systems have become interwoven with the internet over the past decade or so. So this book demonstrates what that might actually look like and how even the people who are most enthusiastic about removing this perceived downside from our lives come to appreciate some of the negative consequences of what that might mean in the aftermath. So if that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Infinite Detail by Tim Mon. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. I'm currently on a speaking tour. You can find out where I will be speaking, get dates and tickets and info at becomingtour.com, and you can find my newest project, an advice column about life, at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out on social media and say hello. I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.